If you have a Bible, you can keep it open to Acts chapter 2. That's on page 909 in the Bibles in front of you, and that's the passage we'll work through. While you turn there again, let me just lead us in prayer. Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, even as we now read your word. We pray that you would please show us truth from it, that the Spirit would give light to our eyes to see it, and hearing to our ears to hear it, and hearts that are ready to believe it. We humble ourselves before this passage and its many turns, and we pray humbly, Lord, that you would keep us closely tight towards truth and illuminate those things that we need for life and godliness, and that you would help us to not only understand it, but to believe it and be transformed by it. Come do all of this and more. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you were one of the two million people or so that were affected by the Nor'easter this weekend, at some point you found yourself without power, right? Fortunately for us in the Northeast, we were not affected by it. In fact, we were sort of turning on lights in the house just to show off. We didn't even need it. Uh, In fact, this is the one time I was telling the kids, I love when you leave the lights on as you leave a room and nobody's there. Go do that as much as you'd like, right? But for many of you, you received that awful notification on your phone that power was coming soon. And so that state of being without power, waiting for this promised power to come, I'm sure that that stunk for you, but I couldn't have scripted a better segue to our passage here in Acts chapter 2, because this is exactly where the disciples of Jesus Christ find themselves. Jesus ascended into heaven, Acts 1. Before he left, he told them that they were to sit tight and wait in Jerusalem, and that power from on high would come and clothe them and cover them. The Holy Spirit of God was coming soon. So they had received this notification of promised power, and with that, they wait. They wait for a day. And then another, and then another after that, and another after that, and then several days go by, and then, on the day of Pentecost, the power comes. The Holy Spirit of God comes, and what happens when the Spirit of God comes on the day of Pentecost becomes the fuel for everything else you read in the book of Acts. That everything else that happens in Acts happens because of what happened in Acts chapter 2. In fact, you've got 120 people from what would be the backwoods of Galilee. This town in the Roman Empire no one had ever heard of. And yet they would spread a movement that would go so far and wide that here we are on the other side of the earth 2,000 years later still speaking of it. So you can't help but ask, what happened on that day? And what is that power? And what is it for? And how do we get it? Well, here's the big idea I want you to hear for Acts chapter 2 in the first 13 verses. It's that God wants all of us to be filled with his spirit so that all of us can be his witnesses, so that all the world can hear about Jesus. Would you notice the words all? Because they're important. God wants all all of us to be filled with his spirit so that all of us can be his witnesses so that all the world can hear about Jesus. That's what I want us to walk through. Uh, Let's break that into three. So here's the first of it. God wants all of us to be filled with his spirit. 
First of all, God wants all of us to be filled with his spirit. Walk through this passage with me. It begins in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, just a sentence on Pentecost so you get background on it. Pentecost is a word that literally means 50. That's what it means. Penta, you can hear the five in there. Pentecost is 50, and that's because it happened 50 days after Passover. It was this Jewish festival 50 days after Passover, and specifically, it was a harvest festival. So it's sort of like the Jewish Thanksgiving. What you were doing was you were gathering the first fruits of the harvest, and it was a picture of the harvest that was to come behind it, and you were giving God thanks for the harvest. Well, by the end of chapter 2, they will, in fact, have a harvest, a spiritual harvest of 3,000 souls that are gathered in on Pentecost. But here they are. It's Pentecost. They're all sitting together in one place when suddenly, that's verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And the beginning of verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So here it comes. More specifically, here he comes, right? It's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's not force. This is not Star Wars. This is a person. This is the third person of the Trinity. In this mystery we cannot fully explain, God has revealed himself three in one, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now the person of the Holy Spirit comes down. Just as in Acts 1, the person Jesus Christ went up into heaven, in Acts 2, the person of God the Spirit comes down from heaven. And How does he come? How does God the Holy Spirit come? Well, the first word there is suddenly. We should take note of that. We should mark that. We should highlight that. Suddenly. As in what? Not on anyone's schedule. Not according to anyone's timetable. No one scheduled him. No one summoned him. He wasn't coaxed into coming. He wasn't manipulated in coming. He wasn't scheduled to come. He wasn't forced to come. There wasn't a set of ingredients where you could put this together and get the Holy Spirit to come. He came suddenly. You could add surprisingly. He comes by his own timetable, according to his own schedule, because the Holy Spirit is God who is sovereign and free. He comes when he wills, how he wills, on whom he wills, right? You can't schedule it. You can't put it on your calendar. You can't set a date for the Holy Spirit to come. He is sovereign and free. When Jesus spoke of the Spirit, he spoke of him like the wind. He said, where the wind goes, you don't know. When it comes, where it blows, you cannot control. So it is with the Holy Spirit. He is sovereign and free to come when he wants and how he wants, on whom he wants, as he pleases. He's like the wind. And speaking of the wind, when does Holy Spirit comes, what do they hear? And what do they see? The text says they heard what sounded like a mighty rushing wind. They saw what appeared like tongues of fire. So there it is. Wind and fire. Wind and fire. What's that? It's sort of like this. 
If I told you someone was here and you said, who was here? And I said, you know, I don't know who it was, but he had a red cape on and blue tights and red underwear and a big red S on his chest. Well, then you'd know exactly who was here because those are calling cards that tell you who just came. Well, in the Bible, when you see wind and when you see fire, those are calling cards, calling cards of the presence of God. God appeared to Job, this righteous man in the Old Testament. When he came to Job, how did he come? He came in the whirlwind. He appeared to Abraham. When he appeared to Abraham, how did he come? But a column of fire. He appeared to Moses. When he came, how did he appear to Moses? In a burning bush, fire that did not extinguish the bush. When he came to Israel, how did he come? In this cloud, in this wind, this fire that touched down on the mount. This is how God has come. But here's the thing. God's come to his people, and he's come in wind and fire before. But would you consider what's unique about Pentecost? He's come before. He's come in wind and fire before. But what is it that's unique about Pentecost? Would you look again at verse 2 and 3? The house was filled with what sounded like a mighty rushing wind and then appeared like tongues of fire. And then catch this detail. It rested on each one of them. The fire rested on each one of them. And then there's our word again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The fire of God came down and it rested on each one of them so that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, God's presence had come. The fire had come before. But who did it come to? It came to Abraham. And it came to Job, and it came to Moses, and it came to the leaders of Israel. The average Joe was down at the bottom in the basin, but the leaders went up to the fire with Moses where God was. The Holy Spirit had come before. This isn't the first time he's filled someone. He filled people even in the Old Testament. But he filled those who were set apart by God for a specific task. He filled prophets. He filled kings. Even the gospel according to Luke before all this, Luke's volume 1, tells us that John the Baptist was filled while he was in the womb with the Holy Spirit, who happens to be, by the way, the greatest human being who has ever been born, Jesus said. So you can't help but you put this together and you go, okay, he comes, but he comes to Abraham and Job and Moses and to the leaders and to John the Baptist. You can't help but feel like he comes, but he comes to the valedictorians of the class. He comes to those who play varsity. He comes to the Green Beret, the elites, the Hall of Famers of the Christian faith. But now, Acts 2, at Pentecost, he comes on all of them. And the fire of God rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? That for the first time, Time in human history, the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit filled all of God's people. Filled all of God's people from the greatest of them in the room to even the least of them. From the apostles whose names you know to the hundred plus people in that room whose names you still have no idea. The fire of God came and fell on all of them and rested on each one of them. In fact, this is what Peter will explain. 
Next week, we'll hear Peter's sermon. He'll stand up and he'll explain what they're seeing. And in verse 17, if you scan down for a second, Acts 2, he's going to quote the prophet Joel and he's going to say, listen, this is what Joel was saying, that the day's coming when God will pour out his spirit, and there's our word again, on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, on your old men and on your young men, on your male servants, your female servants, he's going to pour out his spirit on them all. Without discriminating, without favoritism, not for the Green Beret, not for the valedictorians, not for the upper class, on all his people. He will pour out, drench, overwhelm, rain down his spirit on them all, on us all. Here's what that means. Here's why that matters. Pentecost means that God wants all of us to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Would you hear that and not let that one go by? Pentecost means God wants you and you and you and you to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Here's why that matters. Acts 2 means that each and every one of us can have a personal encounter with the living God. He is not just here. His power and presence is not just for Abraham. And it's not just for Moses and it's not just for Job. It's not just for the apostles or the leaders or your pastors or professional Christians. His power and presence is for all of us. It's for you. So if you're here today and you have never had a personal encounter with the living God, I want you to know you could literally leave here today having encountered God. That today you could have a personal encounter with the living God. That for you it would begin just like it began for these disciples. Their encounter with God and the Holy Spirit began when they met Jesus. And you can meet Jesus. They do what you are called to do, which is they believe that Jesus was God in the flesh who had come down to this earth and lived this perfect life you have never lived. And died this death you deserve to die in your place and for your sins. And then Acts 1 says that this Jesus showed himself alive to them and they believed in his resurrection. And for all of you who would today trust in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he promises to fill you with his Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God would come and live and dwell in you. I mean, so staggering is that thought that Here's what it's like. If you had the option between having Jesus in the flesh beside you or the Holy Spirit within you, Jesus says it's better for you to have the Spirit within you. And you wonder, have we understood all that is ours in the Spirit? Because how would you answer that question? If you today could choose between Jesus in the flesh beside you Or the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, which would you choose? And Jesus is saying, it is better for you that the Spirit of God should dwell in you. This is the encounter that is available to us all, Pentecost says, because each and every one of us can have the Spirit of God. But repentance and faith in Christ. And for those of you that have made that faith commitment, for those of you that have met Jesus and trusted in him, Pentecost matters because it's saying to you, yes, and you can still be filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you hear that? When you believed in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But Pentecost and Acts is showing us 
that you can still be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be careful here. One commentary I read rightly said this. It said, whole theologies and denominations have been started over what you see in Acts chapter 2. Right? Whole theologies and denominations have been started over what's in Acts 2. There is no shortage of ink that has been spilled by God's people in trying to define and describe and understand Acts 2. And Christians who love Jesus and who are infinitely more smarter than us have landed in different places on this passage, and so we want to approach it humbly. We want to again say, God, there is so much about you that we don't know. Give us your Holy Spirit so that we could better understand. But with great humility, knowing that we land in different places on this, I want to carefully say this. There is, on the one hand, no doubt that what happened at Pentecost was a one-time, unique, never-happening-again act of God. There's one sense in which Pentecost is a one-time, unique act of God in the course of redemption history. In the mighty works of God, Pentecost is one of those things. It's sort of like Christmas. You're never getting Christmas again. He is never coming to be born of a woman again. That happened once and for all in the unfolding story of God. It's like Good Friday. You're never getting that again. It's like Easter or the Ascension. You are never getting that again. It happened once and for all in God's redemptive history. So likewise, Pentecost. Pentecost is this one-time, unique God pouring out His Spirit on all his people, the opening of a new era whereby the Spirit of God is poured out on all his people and the church of Jesus Christ, in some sense, is born in Acts 2. That is never happening again, just like Christmas isn't happening again. And yet, at the same time, as you keep reading Acts, what you will see is that the people who were filled by the Spirit in Acts 2 will themselves again be filled by the Spirit throughout Acts. That there is subsequently many fillings, as it were, of the Holy Spirit. In fact, some of the same people who are there in Acts 2 and filled by the Holy Spirit will two chapters later in Acts 4 be again be filled by the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit fills them in Acts 4, this time there is no wind, and there is no fire, and there's no tongues like we'll see in a moment. But still the Spirit of God fills them and empowers them to do what God wanted them to do in that moment, which was to boldly witness for Jesus Christ. That the Spirit of God fills us to empower us for the works He has for us. And that that happens over and over and over again. So what that means for you, don't let this pass, is that Pentecost means that there are new encounters with God by His Holy Spirit that you should desire with all your heart that you should seek, that you should pray for, that you should desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. There is fresh stirrings and fillings of the Holy Spirit that we should desire and seek. Throughout Christian history, those who have loved Jesus before us have described their experiences to us that make us, in a right way, jealous for those kinds of things ourselves. I'll give you one example. I was reading this account of this man named D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist in America, in Chicago in the 1800s, had this wonderful ministry. Moody says that in 1871, two women from his church 
in the summer of 1871, felt this burden to pray for their pastor. They felt this overwhelming burden to pray that D.L. Moody would be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the fire of God. Moody, it says, initially hearing it, was a bit irritated by these women. Okay? So he's a little ticked off, a little annoyed at them, but eventually he's won by them. So that Friday by Friday, he starts joining these two women, praying for the filling and flooding of the Holy Spirit. Well, months go by, and it's November of 1871, and he has felt by this point as if he's doing ministry, but there's no power, there's no fruit from it all, and he's desperate for God. And one day, he's walking in New York City, and just hear how he describes this encounter he had with God. He says this, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Did you catch that? That he was so overwhelmed by the hand of God and the love of God, he had to ask God, would you let up? Otherwise, I can't take it anymore. And then he goes on to say, I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you should give me all the world, it would be small dust in the balance. You hear what Moody's saying? Moody's saying, I had an encounter with God that I wouldn't trade you the whole world for. He says, I, I went on to preach just like I did before, but suddenly something was different so that hundreds were being converted. An encounter with God that left no doubt in his soul about the nearness of God and the love of God for him. And if you ask, what happened there? Well, rather than answering it, let me let another Christian answer it. There was a Christian named Martin Lloyd-Jones, a well-known preacher in his own day. And he said it like this. He said, you know what normal state Christianity is? Normal state Christianity is this wonderful experience. It's almost like a dad walking with his little child hand in hand down the street. It's sweet and it's wonderful. Hand in hand, the child is near his father. He knows his father. He's loved by his father. Hand in hand, safe and secure, walking down the street. That is our normal Christian experience, and it is not to be despised, and it is wonderful. But then, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, every now and then, by the initiative of the father, he will take that same boy and grab him up in his arms. And he'll press him against his chest and hold him tight and grab his face and shower him with kisses and look him in the eye and say, you are mine. And then he'll take that boy and put him down and they'll keep walking down the street. Now, nothing has changed. That boy is still his dad and his father, his son. They're still close, but there's something about that. That being carried up and brought close and being assured where every doubt that he might have had is stripped away from his soul. And his father is real and near and he's experienced it in a way that he cannot shake. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that's what we should want and seek and desire and pray for and to be filled by the Spirit and to be encountering God in fresh and new ways. Listen, if we learn from the Christians before us. If you find yourself today dry, distant, you believe some of this stuff in your head, but you don't really feel it in your heart, you should ask God for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to be empowered again, 
to believe and to witness and to be on his mission. That this is available for you. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, and when that, that experience happens to more than one of us at the same time, that's what a revival is. That's what a revival is. When all of us at one time feel that. And you can't schedule that because he comes suddenly. You can't put a date on a calendar saying we're having a revival this evening. He's the wind. He comes when he wants, how he wants, on whom he wants. But we can plead with him. We can pray for him. So one application for you from Acts 2 would be pray. Pray for the spirit to fall afresh in your life like this. And pray that he would fall afresh on our church like this. Pray that he would fall afresh like that on our city like this. Just this week, I was reading again of some of the old things I had read about revivals. You should Google and read, if you haven't read before, of the Welsh revival of the 1900s. How the Spirit of God, during a time of decline and Christian decline in Wales, fell in the 1900s. How suddenly thousands were coming to faith and how that leaked out from there to the ends of the earth. So much so that I remember in seminary reading accounts of the denomination in which my parents were born into, southwestern little part of India. And that denomination, I read of its first days, they used to have this convention. 17,000 people, unprompted, unled by anyone, praying at the same time because the Holy Spirit of God had filled them in such a unique way. Congregations of people who changed their service because in that hour felt such deep conviction of sin, they prayed and cried and wept for hours. You should read of revivals in Massachusetts. You should read the writings of men like John, Jonathan Edwards and such to remind us God's Spirit does this kind of thing. And we should long for it. And we should want it. Pentecost means that God wants all of us to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Well, let me give you the second. The second and third I'll say faster. Second, Pentecost also means that God wants that so that all of us can be his witnesses. God wants all of us to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Second, so that all of us can be his witnesses. Witnesses, would you read with me what it says in verse 4? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? They were all filled by the Spirit, which then empowered them all to be witnesses. That's what the text says. They were filled by the Holy Spirit, each and every one of them, and now they all began to speak in other tongues, the text says, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, in the future, we will need to and will preach a whole sermon on tongues. That'll come. We need to do that. But for this passage, for now, what I want you to hear is, I don't think that what you have here in Acts 2 is the kind of tongues that you read about in other parts of the New Testament. 
So, for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul will talk about this private prayer language that Christians might have, or a spiritual gift, this angelic language that requires interpretation. That is right and true and there in Corinthians. But here, here, there is no interpretation. In fact, that's exactly the point. An interpretation is not needed because they are suddenly filled with the Spirit, empowering them to speak in other foreign languages. So much so that this multinational crowd that gathers around to hear them can each of them, verse 11, hear the mighty works of God being declared in their own native language, the text says. So you know what Acts 2 is saying? Acts 2 is saying the Spirit of God comes... And with no language classes, no Rosetta Stone, nothing, no training, suddenly they start speaking in Arabic and in Italian and Egyptian. And all of a sudden, that whole crowd of people is hearing the mighty works of God, what God has done through Jesus Christ in their own language. It'd be like right now, with no training whatsoever, if I just started speaking Swahili fluently. No accent at all, and anyone who knows Swahili would go, he is declaring the mighty works of God in my own heart language. And all of a sudden, Keith is speaking perfect Mandarin, fluent as can be. And Pat is speaking in Russian, and someone else is speaking in German. Suddenly, all of us are speaking in these languages so that this multitude of people that gather because they hear this sound, every one of them is hearing with their own ears what God has done through Jesus Christ. You see what's happening? Acts 1.8 is happening. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come, and when he comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, the ends of the earth just happened to be in Jerusalem that day. And the Spirit of God comes, and they are empowered by the Spirit through an ability they did not have of their own to declare the works of God in such a way that the ends of the earth are hearing about him. And and make no mistake, this is not their own ability. This is not their own power. It is without question, this is something God was doing. In fact, You get a sense of that, that the only credit for this goes to God in what the crowd says about these people. Look at verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? The commentaries I read said that this, this verse is almost like a little stab, a little jab at the Galileans. Because the the thought of that day is that the Galileans had a a reputation for being quite narrow, provincial, a bit uncultured. One of the commentaries I said they, they literally spoke in a way that you would never expect them to speak in a foreign language fluently. It's sort of like if if the Galileans were in our day, Jeff Foxworthy would have had a whole bit about them. They'd be like the rednecks of our day. Right? You would hear Jeff Foxworthy saying, if you spent more on your pickup truck than your education, Chances are you're a Galilean, that kind of thing. And the point would have been, nobody expected this from them. This uncultured, uneducated, unsophisticated bunch, speaking fluent Italian, speaking fluent Swahili, speaking fluent Egyptian, aren't these a bunch of Galileans? How is it then that we are each of us hearing the mighty works of God declared in our own native languages? Here's what that means. Here's why that matters. Because Pentecost 
was the filling of the Spirit in such a way that they had a foreign power to be the witnesses God needed them to be in that hour. Friends, that's what being Pentecostal means. That you are Spirit-empowered for the witness of Jesus Christ. For the mission of Jesus Christ. This wasn't a private experience about me and the Holy Spirit. This was Spirit-empowered for the sake of declaring with this mouth of mine the mighty works of God to all people, to be a witness for Jesus Christ, insofar as we will live on mission and be his witnesses. God will provide the power we need by the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want to say. If you want to apply this, no guilt trip about evangelism, no guilt trip about missions, about how you need to do it or any of it. I would simply ask you just in a different way. Aren't we tired of our lack of evangelism? Aren't we tired of our ineffectiveness when it comes to mission and ministry? Don't you with me groan and long that there hasn't been someone to baptize in a little while? And don't you hear of how people are coming to faith in other places and say, why isn't that happening in my neighborhood and with my friends and my coworkers and my relatives and my cousins and my parents? And so if nothing else, let Acts 2 put in us a renewed desperation that says, apart from your Holy Spirit, nothing will happen. So fill us again with fresh power to be witnesses for Christ. We have already proven we can't do this on our own. So fill us with power to be and say and do things that don't come from us, but come from your Holy Spirit. Pentecost means God wants all of us to be filled with his Spirit so that all of us can be his witnesses. Third and finally, so that all the world can hear about Jesus. God wants all of us to be filled with his Holy Spirit so that all of us can be his witnesses, so that all the world can hear about Jesus. Just hear this last part, verses 9 and following. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. As we go out as his spirit-empowered witnesses, you can expect there will be mixed reactions. You know, we like to imagine if the spirit came down like it did in the Bible times, everybody here would be a believer. And yet, Acts 2, and some of them wrote it off as going, they're drunk. That's what's happening. Well, Peter will speak a sermon about that. We'll get to that next week. But here, what I want you to not miss is that Luke is giving us, do you hear this list of nations? That what Dr. Luke wants to make clear and doesn't want you to miss is the multilingual, multiracial, multinational, international nature of this crowd. It's his way of saying, do you see, there are people here from everywhere. From everywhere. If you Google Acts 2 image, you'll see a map with this charted as this big circle going everywhere. Radiating from Jerusalem everywhere. From Iran to the Caspian Sea to Turkey to Palestine, Syria, Armenia, 
North Africa, Libya, Asia, Cretans, Arabians, Romans, everyone is here, Luke is saying. And Pentecost means that Acts 1-8 is happening. That's what Pentecost means. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, here they are in Jerusalem, giving witness to Jesus, to the people from the ends of the earth. Acts 1-8 is happening. What does this mean? Why does this matter? It matters because, friends, Acts 1-8 is still happening. The ends of the earth for us is bigger than the known world back then. We have people groups they didn't even know of. But the mission still is on because the Spirit has come, the mission is on, and we are to go. Now let me just say one thing. A friend of mine named Pri said this wonderfully helpful thing about what, what we call unreached people groups. Missionaries now have labeled unreached people groups. Those are people with no access to, no credible witness of the gospel. And he made the simple point of saying, listen, missionaries didn't come up with that so that we could know who are the impossible people. Right? You didn't come up with unreached people groups to essentially say, those are the unreachable people groups. Right? The point of this is not to say, you know, it, we've divided it up so there's people that are easy and then a little harder and really hard and impossible. And the unreached people groups are the impossible ones. That wasn't the point of the missionaries. It wasn't to, to mark out the unreachable people groups. It was to point us to who we need to go reach. The unreached people groups was so that we would know where we need to go, not who can't be gone to. You see, Pentecost is teaching us there is no one outside the scope of the Spirit's power. There's no hurdle the Spirit can't jump. Don't be thinking for a second that a Westerner in the Bible Belt is more susceptible to respond to the gospel than the woman in the burqa that lives next door or the man with the turban. No one, because that is reducing the gospel as a solution for some sociological or genetic problem. You just happen to be born there. You happen to be born there. But the gospel comes at a much deeper problem, the sin problem, which is common to all. And the Spirit is able to resurrect dead things, whether that be on the other side of the planet or in Alabama. There is no one beyond the scope of God's gospel. And so don't have a thought in your own heart that looks at that neighbor and goes, there's no way they are responding to the gospel. In fact, if Acts 2 teaches anything, doesn't it teach there is no national, racial, linguistic boundary or border that the Spirit of God won't jump to get people to Jesus? There's no one. There is no one outside the scope of the Spirit's work. No one outside the scope of God's power. Our friend Robin Koshi, who was here just a few weeks ago, he said it beautifully. I love this sentence. He said, isn't it amazing that the first time people are preaching the gospel after the ascension, that it is in every language at once? What is God saying? No language or culture has precedence in the Christian faith. Isn't that a wonderful thought? The very first time the mighty works of God done through Jesus Christ are being spoken post-ascension. It is spoken in every language at once. It was not spoken in English. It wasn't spoken in Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew. It was spoken in every language at once saying this gospel 
from the hour of its birth in proclamation is for the whole world and is for everyone. It comes to every culture, interacts with every culture, redeems every culture, and none are beyond its scope. This is Pentecost. Let me say one last thing. More than one commentator has noticed that Luke does something here that resonates and resembles something else in the Bible. You get this list of nations, and then you get these languages. Well, if you go back to your Bible, in Genesis chapter 10, you'll see this table of nations. You can just hear it with me. And then in chapter 11, you get this story of the Tower of Babel. And the story is that man had decided in their unified oneness that they were going to ascend to God. They were going to climb up and build a tower into the heavens. Such was their pride and their haughtiness. Nothing could stop them. Well, God comes in Genesis 11 and judges their sin by giving them multiple languages, confusing them, and scattering them to the nations. So what does sin do? Sin breaks these people apart, gives them multiple languages, scatters them abroad. Now there's racism and superiority and divisions and all the rest. But what happens when the Spirit of God is poured out on the earth? Now it is not man ascending up to God. God descends down to man by his Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He overcomes every barrier that the language presents. And he gathers together one great people, a harvest of 3,000 souls from every language and every tribe and every people. Remember what Pentecost is? It's a harvest festival where you celebrate the first fruits. You take a bite of the apple and you go, this is sweet. That means the rest of the harvest that's coming behind is going to be sweet. Well, you had the first fruits of harvest on Pentecost. And what's the first bite? There are 3,000 people. They are in different languages and different nations and different tongues. And they are together singing the mighty works of God. And it is picturing there is a better day coming. Where Revelation 7, 9 says, And I looked, and behold, before the throne, there were people from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation singing, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. This is what Pentecost is about. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We confess our weaknesses. We confess there's so many things we don't know. We pray that you would steer us in kindness away from error and to truth. We feel ourselves on ground that's been argued over, and so we humbly come. But we know where you are, it's holy ground. And you will take us not because of the perfection of our theologies, but because of your own grace. So we come to you, and we ask that every single person here would be filled with the Holy Spirit that our church would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that Philadelphia would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, we pray for that kind of outpouring, that you would show us grace, that we would experience it, that you would swoop us up in your arms, and we would know what we believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.